On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. So let's begin. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the man without fear, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Uh, pretty good. I mean, I, I, I feel like... Is that I, true? Sorry I, to interrupt, Liam. I know that you have a lot to talk about, but is this true? Are you a man without fear? No, I was about to say. that's. I'm, I'm, you seem rather is, fearful. I, I mean, there's a lot to be fearful of right now, Doug, at least mm-hmm. in my world. I, I yeah. don't know. But yeah, I, I, I will say I'm not ruled by my fear. Oh, uh, no. Did that sound okay. dramatic? That's... Did that sound tough? I was trying slightly, to be tough. Slightly dramatic. Liam, uh, we're here today to talk about Little Shop of Horrors, a, uh, a probably one of Dick Miller's most well-known films, maybe one of Roger Corman's most well-known as well. Is this a film that you had a lot of uh, experience with previously? Can I tell you something, actually? Please. I had never seen it before. What? I mean, not not to throw back the curtain too far, but this is a particularly easy movie to see because it's it's in a lot mm-hmm. of like public domain mm-hmm. collections. So mm-hmm. I I am taken aback by hearing this, Liam. Why is it that you never watched it? Well, when I was a kid, uh, and this will surprise no one, that I was obsessed with the 1986 version mm-hmm. of Little Shop of Horrors. Right, of course. And uh, because of this, my mom, when she saw one of these. Uh, discounted VHSs of the original Little Shop of Horrors. I guess because it was public domain, you could get it for pretty cheap. She got it Absolutely. at the supermarket for like, whatever, five bucks or whatever. She brought it home, and I popped it in, and upon realizing that it was not the movie that I was familiar with, I immediately ejected it and never tried to watch it again. Wow. Turned off by the original Little Shop of Horrors. Now, well, to, I, be, to be fair, as an adult, I was fully aware that my experience as a child was not definitive for this but it just it's always been on my list like i have like a running list of movies to watch it's been on there and i just never really took the plunge for for no reason i've wanted to see it for a long time so when uh we decided to cover this movie on this episode i was very excited well i'm glad to hear that and i'm glad that we have with us today a guest that's worthy of a classic film that you i guess decided wasn't worth your time liam our <laughs> guest today is a writer producer and host of the recently launched podcast Overhated. it's scott weinberg how you doing scott hello gentlemen thank you for having me i am excited to talk about this motion picture is this a movie that you've seen before scott i have to i'd have to think that this is a movie that you're intimately familiar with yeah uh, like Liam, um, I'm slightly older than I, uh, I was obsessed with the musical and I just approached the 1960 film with a fully open mind and playful spirit and quite enjoyed it. <laughs> a playful uh, spirit. I, that, that's what Liam was missing. Apparently. Yeah. I was not uh, a petulant and spiteful young boy. Well, mm. I can't deny any of these uh, accusations yeah L- liam i have to ask you simply be- we'll talk about the fact that this was uh, adapted into a musical in the early 1980s and then adapted into a film based on that musical directed by frank oz later in the 1980s what is your favorite song from the musical liam oh man mm, it's, i know it's a difficult question 
I don't know that. I don't actually know. I mean, I, gosh. Okay. Well, I don't want to tax your brain, Liam. I thought that no, you might I, be able to just I have, no, come out with I, something. No, because I, I 100% just say, haven't. Just, just say Skid Row, dude. Yeah, yeah Skid Row. Sure, That's what everyone sure. says, Skid Row. To be fair, I haven't watched it since, <laughs> Suddenly Seymour since I was some... like, a, like a teenager. Like I haven't returned to the material. I watched the movie a bunch. I watched the cartoon based on the movie a bunch. Yeah. Uh, and then I you know, haven't gone back to it. So, like... I'm sure if you played it right now, I could probably hum along, but I don't. I don't think I could name the song. I mean, all right, that's what that's the, the rest of this episode. I'm going to play the soundtrack, and you're just going to hum along to it to prove <laughs> that you do have familiarity. Also, keep in mind, I fell in love with this thing when I was like eight, so it's not like um, I was remembering the names of songs at that time. Like somewhere that wasn't that's like a green. Thing for me. Yeah. Uh, See, Scott knows it. He got all the songs yeah, listed. Well, you know, uh, mean, mean Green Mother from Outer Space. They're mean. <laughs> you know uh, what? <laughs> wait, what movie are we here to talk about? Scott, we're here to talk about all matters of movies. Uh, but before we get into it, I want to talk about. How did they not get a cameo from Dick Miller into that into the 1986 music? It kind of feel, feels Yo. like they wanted to leave the original behind as much as possible, which is something that I take personally. And it seemed like some of the cast members that I've read interviews with of the original Little Shop of Horrors that they make they took a little issue with the fact that Frank Oz didn't at least put them in there. I just feel like Dick Miller goes in everything. It's not like right. 1986. Right. You're thinking, well, Dick Miller, he's not relevant. Come on, I mean, he's still yeah, doing great work at that point. Yeah. Yeah, Gremlins came out the year before. I mean, he was yeah. absolutely. Let, 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 just in case our younger viewer or uh, younger listeners might not realize, Dick Miller was Dick Miller even back in 1986. He was a guy yeah. who would show up in three or four movies a year. Yeah. And if you were lucky, he'd have more than three lines. <laughs> yeah, it might have been like the the Dick Miller period from Terminator to Gremlins to Explorers. I mean, we're in. It's really been the meat of what we've been talking about so far. But Scott, before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about Overhated, your podcast. Now, there's a lot of hate in the world. I don't know if you've been hearing about this. Uh, it's a hateful time to be alive in the world as a whole. And uh, when it comes to these kind of really negative feelings, sometimes people are really negative towards movies. Not us. Liam and I only spread love out into the world. But okay. why did you decide to do a podcast called Overhated? Well, like a lot of movie f fans, I uh, grew up to some degree on some mystery science theater. Sure. Uh, I, I like, uh, I, lo I love movies, and I can enjoy when movies are ridiculed. I, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't like it when it's mean-spirited, um, but I do like when you can, like, mock bad filmmaking or even, you know, good movies are sometimes <laughs> easy to make fun of. So, you know, I think that as long as you're doing it in a respectful and fair way, that it also can be very educational. You can learn a lot from bad filmmaking. Sure. Um, and then as we grew up, we now have podcasts galore, like how did this get made in the flop house yeah. that, that uh, look at ostensibly or allegedly bad films and discuss in a humorous way, uh, the reaction to them. And I thought, wouldn't it be more interesting for me? Cause I'm not quite as funny as those people. Wouldn't it, but I am hilarious. It wouldn't it be fun <laughs> to give people a little context on, all right, people know Ishtar and Howard the Duck and Catwoman are punchlines. Beyond bad movies, they are punchlines at this point. But how did, how are, how'd they get that way? How, how does something like Catwoman re is remembered as outspokenly bad, whereas something like Mummy Returns is like bad and then we just forget about it? Right. 
Absolutely. Uh, mm. Have you in in revisiting some of these movies? Have you had one experience where it kind of switched your opinion on something? Something that you had maybe not seen for a while that you kind of maybe its reputation preceded it, but now revisiting it, you have a better appreciation for it. Uh, yeah, a couple of films. I mean, I mean, the, one of the main points is I want to I want to still be a film critic and give my opinion on what, for example, in Catwoman does not work. Right. But <laughs> you know, uh, the one of the main points of Overhated is to you know, find some gems in, even in a really bad film, you should be able to find, if you're a film lover, you should be able to find some, some components here or there, whether it's a performance or a joke or a great action sequence or some nice cinematography or production sure. design. Mm -hmm. If you're a film lover, you should be able to find something of quality in, in even Battlefield Earth. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly, <laughs> I mean, sometimes it takes a little more searching, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. You know, I cut, I cut my teeth on micro budget movies and sometimes it takes even more searching in those cases. Yeah. But uh, it, the reason I was always drawn towards them was the kind of spirit behind the making of it. And that's what my appreciation kind of comes out of. So when it comes to larger budgeted movies, I have to be honest, Liam, sometimes I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I'm like, mm -hmm. they have all these resources. Why can't they make something good? But sometimes it just doesn't happen. But you know what? We're not talking about movies that are bad. We're talking about a great movie, The Little Shop of Horrors. And one of the elements that makes it so great is the great Dick Miller, which is what we're here to talk about. Scott, when I say the name Dick Miller, what's the first movie that springs to mind? Gremlins. Gremlins. And why is that? Because uh, they put gremlins there in, 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 in a machinery there and they'll get you. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Dick Miller, uh, yeah, I think it would have to be Gremlins, probably because even as a young man or a key, as a young adult, I uh, loved the com the comedy horror mashup, which means I saw Gremlins a lot when I was a kid, and I always liked the way that Billy was nice to Mr. Futterman. I thought that was a a classy way to write that, because he's a kind of a crackpot, and Billy could just be very dismissive and get away. Uh, and he's a tertiary character, him and his wife, the, the woman who's the, the female lead of Little Shop of Horrors. Absolutely. Um, uh, and so I just love him in Gremlins. Uh, I just thought it was a good performance and a well-written role. And and then he's just the guy who just pops up in everything. And I, I guess somewhere in the mid-late 90s, I just went, oh, that's Dick Miller. And when, you, when, you're, a, a, when you're a movie nerd, you see the five or the fifth or sixth build actor and you're like, ooh, Xander Berkeley, ooh, Bill Sadler, <laughs> you know, uh, ooh, Jennifer Jason Lee. But like Dick Miller would rarely even make the opening credits. So he That's was true. like, he was like buried treasure that you would find in two thirds of the way through it. He'd be the cab driver who'd say, get out of the road, you asshole. And you'd go, oh, Dick Miller, hooray. <laughs> Scott, we're here today to talk about Little Shop of Horrors. Why this film, of all the films that <laughs> we haven't yet covered on this show, do you think that uh, this is a movie that we should revisit? Because it's funny. Yeah. That's it. This movie is a lot funnier than you may remember. Uh, I, I, I think that the, the screenplay is very witty. A lot of the back and forth between Mr. Muchnick and Mrs. Shiva and, and Seymour and Audrey is very fast-paced and screwball-esque, and I quite enjoy it. Uh, whether now, or not you like where it goes with the monster stuff, that's fine. But I think it, I think the dialogue is really quite sharp and funny. Now, I was told that uh, no one had ever mixed horror and comedy until Ryan Murphy did it in 2015 with the television <laughs> show Scream Queens. But you're telling me that, that this movie kind of mixes these things together back in 1960. Yeah. And you know what? A year before this, 
these same people made something called a bucket of blood. And that's also comedic horror. <laughs> Liam, can you confirm? Well, considering we covered that movie on this very podcast, yes, yeah. I can mm-hmm. confirm. You know that. what? I had forgotten. And now that it's, it's all coming back to me now that I, I'm thinking about it. Uh, it is funny. And, you know, that's something that I think we, we're going to talk about that people may may not appreciate from modern eyes where horror comedies are you know, kind of a dime a dozen, which isn't to, uh, to discount uh, the, the quality of a lot of them. But, you know, this is a movie that is so unique. And when I was growing up and reading about The Little Shop of Horrors, the thing that usually I would be hearing about was how threadbare it was because of its reputation for having been made so quickly on such a low budget. Oh, yeah. But it's super cheap. It, but it's I'd be super like, cheap. But if somebody in your neighborhood was putting this play on and you never they wrote this play and they were putting this play on on a stage that they built with curtains from their bedroom and they put they ran this play for an hour, you would stand up and clap because it's funny. So the fact that it's super cheap after you're there for 10 minutes, you're either playing along or you're not. And I think, you know, they do a lot of goodwill to make you want to play along. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, goodwill is a really good way of putting it because I think I feel like this movie develops a lot of goodwill and good naturedness by the performances, by the writing. I mean, we'll talk about all of this, certainly. But before we get into the movie proper, just before we take our first break, Scott, what is Little Shop of Horror's place in the history of of horror or in cult films uh, kind of overall? You know, it's funny that when we started talking about this movie today, you know, Liam started talking about the musical. Both of you are pretty familiar with it. I am as well. It's something that I watched a lot. Have Has the movie kind of shifted aside? Has has its place been taken by the musical? Do you think that people are not really appreciating Little Shop of Horrors anymore? Um, I think, you know, it's like it's the source material. Mm-hmm. So when, when you say the title, if people think of the stage musical or more likely the movie musical, that's all fine and good. But uh, the people who really love it and want to delve into it and go, ooh, it's a, it's a movie from 1960. I didn't know that. And then they see it's a very, like you said, threadbare, rudimentary, low budget, let's the, made over the course of three weekends, kind of $40,000, whatever it costs, horror movie. But to me, something that's this entertaining and this clever made for that little bit of money will always be inspiring to filmmakers. Absolutely. In fact, that's it. That, for me, is the key of my love of Little Shop of Horrors. I cut my teeth on both the making of and writing about micro-budget films. And when I see something like Little Shop of Horrors, the spirit of what I love about filmmaking is right there. You have a couple of standing sets from a movie that you've already completed. You have a couple of actors who owe you some hours. Well, let's go on and put on a show. And, I mean, this isn't... It, it's not like an inspiring canon film from 1983 where you got to save the orphanage or whatever. But it's still, you want to go out and entertain people. And, hell, Oftentimes, those movies don't come out so entertaining, but Little Shop of Horrors is one of the big success stories. Liam, anything to say about Little Shop of Horrors before we take our break? I think we'll get into it when we start discussing the film proper. All right, well, let's do that. Let's take our break. When we come back, 1960s Little Shop of Horrors. What kind of a plant is this, Seymour? Well, I'm not sure. I got the seeds from a Japanese gardener over on Central Avenue. He found them in with an order he got from a plantation next to a cranberry farm. Fine, fine. You don't even know what is this plant you're growing. Well, well I gave it a name. What name? Oh, gee. What? You gave it a dirty name? You can't even mention it? Well, I named it Audrey Jr. <gasps> you named it after me! Oh, really? Well, that's the most exciting thing anyone's ever done to me. You poor kid. I don't think it's so much I should keep on spending $10 a week on your salary. But, Gravis, he named it after me. 
I know, and if they keep it, they'll name it Mushnik's Folly because I'll be in jail for non-payment of taxes. Are you crazy? Who, who? You, you. That's probably the only plant of its kind in the world. Don't you realize if Seymour can nurse that thing back to health, you'll have people coming here from all over? You think so, you found it. I know so, you Mushnik. Now, that's all I'm saying on the subject. Besides, I've got to get home. My wife's making gardenias for dinner. Good night, you folks. Good night. And I'll see you tomorrow. Crazy about kosher flowers. He's a nice man. A clumsy young man nurtures a plant and discovers that it's carnivorous, forcing him to kill to feed it. It's 1960's Little Shop of Horrors, directed by Roger Corman, uh, who I really needs no introduction, especially on this particular show. Uh, and also written by Roger Corman and the great Charles B. Griffith, who, of course, also wrote A Bucket of Blood as well as Not of This Earth. Uh, the Undead was one of the writers on Death Race 2000 and Beast from the Haunted Cave, among other titles. The uh, cast includes Jonathan Hayes as Seymour Krellboind, uh, Jackie Joseph, who we just talked about from Gremlins, uh, as Audrey Fulcard, uh, Mel Wells as Gravis Mushnick, and of course, Dick Miller as Burson Fouch. Uh, as I was, I think I may have mentioned at the beginning, but one of the things that was a surprise to me about this film was how much Dick Miller there actually is in it. And it's not to say that he is the star of the show, but my memory of this movie was that he was in one introductory scene and then he just kind of is in the background, but really he is a consistent presence throughout the whole thing, which actually just adds the kind of the sense of fun. I also should of course mention that Jack Nicholson has one of his earliest appearances, uh, even well before The Terror, which is the uh, film that we featured in our first episode of You Don't Know Dick. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors quite notoriously was made on the sets of a bucket of blood. If, I'll tell you, the, the one that I most noticed was the apartment of Seymour in the film, which is the also the apartment of uh, Dick Miller's character in A Bucket of Blood. Uh, yeah, so it's obviously very low budget, was filmed rather notoriously over two and a half days. There's been some discussion that there was some reshoots, but at the very least made for a very small amount of money on very flimsy sets on a very short amount of time. The script was rushed out and somehow they made a classic movie. I want to get, before we get into your thoughts on the movie generally... I want to get your thought, Scott. How does this movie stack up to the very similarly themed A Bucket of Blood? Do you have a preference between the two? I like this one much better. I think mm -hmm. that the humor, uh, I think that this one ha tonally works a lot better. Uh, I think Bucket of Blood is fun, but all over the place. I think this is a little more focused, uh, although it does kind of lose its way a bit at the end with the old the, the woman <laughs> outside chase that, you know, that, that whole sequence is bizarre to me. Um, but I, I think this is plays like a good sitcom. You know, yeah, uh, I think that's a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah, there is kind of a sitcom quality of it, and I think that's reinforced uh, by the fact that I guess they were just filming with two cameras the whole time, a lot of locked off uh, shots where instead of uh, filming and then doing reverse, they just had two cameras going at all times. So uh, there's actually even a, like a few kind of hiccups in the dialogue sometimes, and they just leave it right in the movie. It gives it kind of a rough but a really kind of fun quality, I think. Yeah, that's one thing that that you know I hear a lot of people talking about dated special effects and and you know to me a reminder that a film was made by human hands is not a bad thing i don't mind uh you know when i was growing up we would watch harryhausen films and you would occasionally see a thumbprint in mm -hmm. in the harryhausen creation and for a millisecond your brain would be like oh my god yeah somebody actually did this stop motion process a thousand times to make this scene and then you're immediately ro rocked right back into the movie because it's so good and I don't mind those little reminders. I don't need, like, anybody to try and fully immerse me. Uh, so if something is cheap, I'm cool with that. If it's clever and creative like this is, you know. 
Yeah, it's, it's always something I've taken a little bit of issue with, the idea that the more you learn about the making of a movie, that it takes away some of the magic. To me, it just adds to the magic because you see so much craft in all of these different areas. But uh, And there oh, is absolutely. craft on, dis- on display here. I mean, th- even though, yeah, there's the, the sets are threadbare. It's There are strong performances here. The dialogue is very funny, as we said. There's a lot to love about Little Shop of Horrors. Before we get your thoughts, Scott, Liam, do you have a preference between A Bucket of Blood and Little Shop of Horrors? Uh, I'm going to disagree with Scott. I prefer Bucket of Blood. Um, Watching this, I was definitely charmed. Like, this is a great movie. But I actually found myself going the other direction and thinking, this movie, in my, you know, experience, and maybe this is different for other people, is a huge cultural moment. Even though I hadn't had a chance to watch it yet, I knew about it because mm-hmm. of the musical, because of the musical movie as well. Um, and I I, ha- I knew people were talking about it, and it, it had this huge sort of weight in my mind. Uh, whereas Bucket of Blood, if we didn't do this podcast, it was just going to be a movie I would get to at some point. Right. It was not one that was a priority for me. And I like it a lot more than this, uh, which might to some of our audience sound like a big diss, like I'm saying this movie's bad. I thought this was great. But as people who've listened to the episode know, I was blown away by Bucket of Blood. I had no expectations for that movie. I really thought it was going to be a struggle for me. Uh, and instead, I, I loved it. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and so it, it's interesting. It's it's I, I don't mean that to be a, like I said, I'm knock against this film at all. They're in some ways different movies. Um, but in the ways that they're similar, I'm much more vibing with Bucket of Blood than I am this film. Is it because you are a filthy beatnik, just like the filthy beatniks that uh, litter? Yes, a yes, of, Okay, yes. that does make a lot of yes. sense. Uh, I do think that, by the way, even though the thing I most like about A Bucket of Blood is that kind of beatnik-ish, uh, you know, kind of color of it, it is something that really presents itself and kind of fixates that movie in a place and time. While Little Shop of Horrors, I wouldn't say it's necessarily timeless, but it doesn't have that kind of... Uh, it's it's not part of that cultural moment. I That's say. fair. That's very fair, actually. Yeah, it 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 doesn't. Again, you couldn't necessarily say it's timeless, but it is a film that doesn't. It doesn't attach itself to anything contemporary enough that it feels out of, or you know, where you feel like, oh, this is about this moment. Um, whereas Bucket of Blood is a lot more about a certain kind of cultural, you know, milieu. Scott, tell me your general thoughts on Roger Corman's Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, like I meant, I said, I, I think it's just a, a nice sitcom premise. Uh, it's a, a guy who's in love with a girl. He works for kind of a, 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 a semi, not abusive, but not kind of an uncaring guy. Uh, he just through his own cleverness creates something that makes him popular. And of course he wants to do everything he can to retain that popularity. And then it's a cautionary tale, a morality tale of what are you willing to do to maintain your new sense or your new uh, status. And of course, he uh, participates in murders, and uh, you know becomes tainted by what he does. And it's just, you know another way to it might be a um, a pretentious way to analyze such a, a, sure. a slight and silly movie. But you know it, it it covers that classic arc, and I like the way it ends too. Um, I I just think it's funny. I think the guy who plays the dentist is very funny. Yeah. I think Mr. Muchnick, the actor who plays Muchnick, is steals the movie. Absolutely uh, does. And uh, uh, the lead is, is surprisingly likable. Uh, you know, I, I think it, I like the uh, the satire in that, like, you have these 
he's worried about the popularity. Will the will the plant bring in money to the? And then it, without even missing a beat, a group of kids come in who represent <laughs> a parade float who just happens to need thousands of dollars. Like that's funny. They just happens to show up at the exact right time. The whole runner about the mother who is uh, completely sickly or fake sickly, and she's so addicted to being sickly that she does not, she feeds her kid medicine for dinners. And then later there's a bit where <laughs> she wants to have dinner with him. Uh, Audrey wants to have dinner with him. And he's expecting to have like, you know, vitamins and aspirin for dinner because his mother is so obsessed. Like that, that whole bit is funny. Um, and Mr. Shiva, that's whole funny where she keeps coming in and needing, <laughs> she keeps needing um, um, smaller and smaller arrangements for these tragedies. I mean, it's, it's a good script. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you're right. Like every character has something interesting to do, right? Because, I mean, even outside of Burst and Fouch, who we'll get to in a little bit with his penchant for eating flowers. I love how Audrey is always using the wrong word for something. It's, it's just a consistent runner throughout the entire movie. Very yeah. charming. Very again, and charm is something that we'll kind of come back to again. What, again. what is uh, what's his what is his flower of choice? Do you remember? Oh, is it gardenias? Am I wrong about that? No, but Vincent Gardenia did play Mr. Mushnick in the remake. Oh, blam! No. <laughs> Blam! You know Look, this you is did... this is why you're here. This Don't, is why you're here, Scott. You set you're like Scotty Pippen, and That's you it. just you set me up. Uh, I believe it was carnations because Mister Muchnick had to, yeah he had to go back into the, the the refrigerator to get them. Oh, that's right, he did have to go back into the refrigerator, which makes an appearance later on when the thief comes in. The thief, of course, played by the writer Charles B. Griffith. I have to ask, actually, before I go over for Liam's general thoughts on the movie, Scott, I want to ask you how sympathetic do you find Seymour in this film? Uh enough to enough for him to balance a comedy horror film yeah uh, if if he's sleazy then the movie's not funny um you know and if he's too childlike then it's not you know it has to be he has to be a fully grown man aware of what's going on and know it's wrong uh and and he does and he has a poetic comeuppance uh, i think his performance is good yeah, I think yeah, I think it's a really strong performance. It's it's difficult because it's hard not to think of the Rick Moranis performance if you're really familiar with the filmed musical. But I really do think that it's a kind of a very different way of playing that kind of role while still being very very sympathetic. And I think I I actually do really feel bad about how his character comes to his end at the end. I think he's just sympathetic enough where it makes you kind of makes you kind of have that little kind of lump in your throat in the wish that, that maybe things could have gone a little bit better for him. But I, this was, of course, a period in history where a movie featuring someone murdering someone that uh, that he was going to get his comeuppance at the end. Now, uh, listeners may be curious about why I compared and actually asked both uh, their guest and Liam to compare A Bucket of Blood and Little Shop of Horrors, it's because the plots have a lot in common about a person who is unpopular, about someone who finds popularity through an accidental murderer, um, a murder, and then has to continue to murder, and often still in a way that isn't d direct, that uh, to allow them to kind of maintain that popularity, and then at the end they sort of get found out. In this uh, case, uh, in the case of this film, you have um, uh, Gravis Mushnick, the owner of the flower store, who finds out what's going on. In A Bucket of Blood, you have a character who finds out what's going on and tries to hold it above the, the the lead character. It is something that's really similar, uh, but I do think that they kind of do differentiate themselves in pretty significant ways. Liam, what are your general thoughts? You've already given them a little bit on Little Shop of Horrors. It's super charming. I agree with you guys that it's very funny. It's surprisingly funny. Like for me, there's less aspects of the script since we were comparing it to Bucket of Blood. Uh, sure. There's less aspects about the the specifically the dialogue in Bucket of Blood that's as funny, whereas there's there's lots of 
actual dialogue in Little Shop of Horrors that just makes you giggle. Like, I just found myself giggling throughout the film. Um, and we're going to get to Dick Miller's performance later, but that character is <laughs> one of my just the, the way he just owns eating those fucking flowers every time. I it's I, I, I guess it's, it's the same joke, him both eat not only eating the flowers, but then sort of being the man on the street flower expert who's like, <laughs> This is a good deal. You want to get in on this this new flower thing. I guess I should stop finding that funny, but it's funny to me from the beginning beginning. I to love the that end. he is the inciting character. Yeah. Like if, yeah. if he's not there that day, the movie doesn't happen. The story doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, I think I I find Seymour maybe a little less sympathetic than y'all do, but hmm. not not in a way where I don't like him. I just feel like the film from from my perspective, the film is not particularly interested in being like, let's understand why Seymour is making this decision. He's just kind of going with it, you know? And so I don't find myself wondering. I'm just kinda like, yeah, you know, the, the flower's hungry. You know, like, let's feed the flower. Let's just go ahead and do it. And uh, I, I, I'm okay with that. I don't need more than that in the film. I I actually really like uh, Jackie Joseph as Audrey in this. Yeah. I know that it maybe feels like one note to some people, but I just think she's so good. There's just something about her being <laughs> the person who's the only person who sees something in Seymour. And, and you know, you're kind of seeing him try to grow a little bit, even if that involves murdering people and feeding them to his weird plant. <laughs> There's just something about that still being a part of the plot that I, that I really like. Um, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, I like I, her. I like her as well. I don't want to interrupt you. But oh I yeah, totally. She has a much smaller presence in the story than she does in the remake. Uh, here she basically right. is like she represents, you know, in a perfect world, what Seymour could have if he was uh, more confident, you know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But uh, she in the scenes where she is given more than three lines, she's very charming and funny. Yeah. And I, you know, at first, the Seymour having this uh, sort of controlling sick mom at home was kind of like, okay, that's fine, whatever. But I got to tell you, the dinner where it's all the different medicines and stuff, <laughs> yep. that, that fucking killed that's me. That's one that's... gag that really is. A, her character exists as a long runner, and yeah, it's all yeah. funny. It really yeah. is. <laughs> um, I, You know, I, I think that the slight difference for me, I guess, is I agree with what scott said that in a way this feels like an episode of a pilot or maybe or, or of a, a sitcom rather or maybe even um this could have been a part of a show that presented like funny short stories you know it right. all feels like that to me um but even though i i do think it's funny it's not like exactly my kind of humor so right. I, I very much find it funny but i wasn't like bowled over by it you know what i mean i just was like oh this is fun um, and I think that only occurs to me because I have such nostalgia for the, for the musical movie, you know? Um, and so there's a part of me that wanted this to be better than that, which is not fair, right? Because that movie imprinted on my brain, mostly because of the giant talking plant. Like the things I remember the most for that movie is giant talking plant and the, and the voice characterization of that giant talking plant and and steve martin those are the two things that really stuck out to me as a kid and so it's like well why do you know it's not fair for me to compare this film to that especially when it had such an impact on me but there's a part of me that wanted this to like be a million times better and that's you know that's just my bias going in is like i i i i 
went in like so excited to be like, this is the source material for this thing that I have such good memories of. But again, as you guys sort of pointed out, or Doug rather, um, I haven't watched it in so long. I don't remember the names of the songs or anything. I don't know right. what they, you know what I mean? So it clearly isn't something I'm returning to on a regular basis. Um, but yeah, I, I, one of the things I, I think we'll get to, but is important to mention for this show too, is like, and you said this too, Doug, that this is one of those opportunities where we're getting a good, healthy chunk of Dick Miller on our Dick mm-hmm. Miller podcast. Right. And that makes me happy because I know, you know, we're going to have some some episodes where we don't got a lot to talk about with our man and that, that those are going to be less fun than this. I was just wanted to interject a, a thought real quick in that I, I try when I see a movie like this that was made well before I was born, I, I try to think of, you know, people who saw this when they were young and right, have yeah. memories of the of the monster like we do. And I guarantee you there are people of our parents' age or slightly younger who saw Little Shop of Horrors on TV when they were a kid, and that Audrey Jr. scared the living oh, crap sure. out of <laughs> Absolutely. them. So it's easy for us to look at it now and go, yeah, it looks like a bunch of straw and, and a bunch of paper mache but I bet you this movie caused a lot of nightmares when, when you know, over the 70s and 80s. I, I want to get both of your take. I don't have this on our, on our list of topics, but I, I want to get a take on something that I never heard before until I was reading an interview with Mel Wells, who plays Gravish Mushnick in the film, that was printed at the back of the comic book adaptation of Little Shop of Horrors from the mid-90s. And I, again, it might be just my own ignorance on it, there were accusations that this film is anti-Semitic uh, that apparently was quite common well into the mid-90s. Uh, and Yeah, I know. It's kind of ridiculous, I think, to think about. And Mel Wells was, was quite, you know, uh, quite clear on it. He's like, I'm Jewish. The writer is Jewish. There were Jewish people in front of the camera, behind the camera. I think it's that people were not used to... Um, like people interjecting with Yiddish names and, and phrases, but apparently yeah, this was right. an accusation. All right, I see where that's coming from now. If you if you were to watch Little Shop of Horrors in a 2021 lens, uh, he's clearly quote-unquote-coded as Jewish, Russian Jew, Hungarian Jew, whatever you want sure. to call it. Um, and he, oh, he goes, and he sounds like Jackie Mason. And, yeah. you know, there's that to it, but... It all seems sincere to me. It doesn't yeah. seem like somebody putting on a garish Jewish accent to make fun. Even if he wasn't a Jewish actor, he, if that's the character he's playing, there's nothing about the character that's offensive. Yeah. I think there's a the, the what they mentioned in the interview is there's there's some scene that is specifically about uh, him realizing that he can make a profit on something and then he suddenly goes to the cash register. But I mean, I think this is that's more of a, uh, you know, a representative of the established, character. But this is the it's thing, established right? early that he's broke. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't well, have to be, it doesn't matter if he's Jewish or not. He's yeah. broke and he's desperate. They keep saying Skid Row for a reason. I mean, maybe yeah. Skid Row doesn't mean anything to people, but you know, at the, you know, th- them am, saying it is really I, clear. Like, we live in poverty here. Like, this I is what, listen, where we're at. Yeah. I'll listen to anybody with a counter argument on this, but I consider myself uh, open-minded when it happens, but also very sensitive to anti-Semitism sure, in, yeah. in pop culture. I really do. I see sure. it. And sometimes I see it where it's like, Oiga Volt, and it's a Pink Panther voice, and it's supposed to be, but it's not, the intent to be offensive is not there. They just wanted a, um, a, a cultural voice, and so they chose the, the Jewish accent. Sometimes it's not offensive at all. 
And then sometimes it really is. And my radar did not go off one iota watching this movie. Yeah, it so. was a shock for me to read that, especially in a comic book adaptation that, that you wouldn't think would even deal with any potential controversy. But yeah, it was really interesting to see um, Mel Wells, who really d- did seem to love his part in this and took great pride in it. And, uh, and uh, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but I, I think his Yiddish or Jewish, uh, his tone, that ca- adds to that character and makes him funnier. That that cultural hook of him being sure. that the, that culture, like as if as if somebody had, w- what if it was about an Italian man and it was a particularly good performance? Would it be offensive if he's coded as Italian? Of course not. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, yeah. I w- I want to say by the way that my favorite part of this movie is is maybe not the best part, which it's the cop subplot. The narration is from the two cops <laughs> yes. in the movie between yeah. Fink and sure. Stooley. There's that part where they have a, a, a conversation in their office, and they're just going back and forth with this. And one of them is just giving kind of one word or grunt answers. To Honestly, proto airplanian humor, right there. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank it you. feels okay. so modern, almost like a comedy sketch. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that in that it, that kind of it, that you could even cut out of it and put it into uh, in front of someone's face, and that they could appreciate. Yeah, I do. I really do like that. Uh, that there is a you know a, a, a heart and a brain going on behind this movie. And I love I, how the the two cops there. There's that one. There's one scene where they. There's the narration at the beginning, then the scene you just talked about, and then halfway through the movie, the cops show up at the flower shop. The narration kind of interrupts their inter, and that's it. The, the, the narration is over, and now they're characters. <laughs> I like how their excuse for showing up at the flower shop is just like we heard. There's something going on over here in terms of the award. That I mean, they come later at first doing the investigation, but later on when when Seymour's getting the award, it's like we heard there's an award going on. Yeah, like the cops just come over whenever anyone is. Also, and you know what? Speaking of that award, she offered him like a horticulturalist award for coming up with this, and then she says, "I'll come back in two days when it's about to bloom." And then she says that him getting the award is contingent upon the flower blooming. How is that fair? (laughs) I feel like it's very difficult to get the exact moment that these things happen. But, you know. (laughs) So this is the kind of pressure that Seymour was under and why I give him a little more empathy than Liam does. Yeah, Liam hates I mean, Seymour. What's I, up, what's I, the deal? I hate horticulturalists. That's the oh, well, I mean, one horticulturalist. Two, I'm a little judgy of murderers. I wouldn't say I hate <laughs> them, but I'm a little judgy of them. Liam, I can probably I probably have an hour's worth of recordings of you talking about how much you love crime and love mm. people committing crimes. It's true, I do. <laughs> Get a and soft that you love hor- and, and oddly that you love horticulturists. That there's there has been some of that. I don't. I don't. Every horticulturalist is just two steps away from doing something like killing people and feeding them to a plant. So, Liam right. O'Donnell. Yes. How dare on you. Uh, our episode about the terror, our very first episode, we talked a yeah. little bit about Jack Nicholson, the actor, a very famous actor. This Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah. What was your take on Jack Nicholson as an actor, Liam? Um, that every time I see young Jack Nicholson, I'm impressed, and I forget the Jack Nicholson of my youth in which I thought, who is this guy? Why is this guy important? I don't get it. What is, what are we doing here? I don't, I don't understand. Um, I, it, what's weird is I actually did like uh 90s Jack Nicholson at the time, but I, if you had asked me, even when I was a kid, do you think he's a good actor? I'm like, I don't know. It's the same guy. It's just, he's doing it. He's just keeps doing the same. Thing. I, don't, I don't know. You know, it's like, kind of funny because since we recorded that episode, we covered both uh, carnal knowledge and yep. the last detail on yep. some of our other podcasts. Oh. Has, has this given you any more of an appreciation for him as an actor? 
Yeah, like exactly what I'm saying. Like I, I He's fucking great is what I'm trying to say, Liam. He's a great, uh, great actor. But that's what he said. He said at the beginning in his early, in his 70s performances he was versatile. And, and then you think he got lazy in the 80s. And then, it, and, oh, let's be fair, I've seen a lot of Nicholson. And then throughout the 90s, he was kind of like just coasting on that, I'm a, I'm a bad is, boy. Yeah, this is, what, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is what I'm saying here, is that when I only knew his later performances, again, I don't necess- I'm not necessarily saying those performances are bad. Because honestly, I think there were a number of directors in the nineties who cast Nicholson because they knew what he was going to do. He's going to be Jack Nicholson, but I wouldn't have called him like a, an amazing thespian at the time. Um, but as I've seen his earlier performances, I think he did have a lot of going on. And this comedic performance in this film um, was not what I was expecting. I, I knew he was in it, really but I weird. didn't know what it was going to be. And it's weird. It's, it's great. Really it's weird. so weird. It's so memorable. You know, uh, one of the notable things about this film. Uh, about Jack Nicholson's success after this film is that when you see a lot of these public domain versions of The Little Shop of Horrors, they put his face right on the cover, right? It's just like starring Jack Nicholson, which I probably <laughs> means that that uh, if you were a big Jack Nicholson fan as a kid, you'd be double disappointed, right? You'd Liam? be because so angry be getting... at that. You'd want your dollar back from the dollar. Want... Right. That's right. Yes. That's right. 100%. But uh, he is a very memorable part of the movie. And I wanted to get your take on his performance, Liam. But first, I'm going to get yours, Scott. What do you think about Jack Nicholson in this movie? I just love that it's a character that was created by Jack Nicholson and then kind of remade by Bill Murray. That's yes. funny to me. Um, I, I just, well, they, in both movies, he's a guy who enjoys pain. Mm-hmm. And like, there's no bad, there's no explanation as to why. And as a kid, I wasn't really sure what a, you know, a sadist or masochist was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still don't really get why that's funny, but it is so much fun to just see Jack Nicholson playing a weirdo freak. And, and, and like, but let's be fair. We call a lot of this screenplay cleverer than it than we expected. This whole setup in Punchline where he, oh, now he's walking out and he's lost teeth. He's wah, 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 missing teeth. It's not, it's not the best material in the movie. It's very cartoon. It's very, yeah. it, I mean, there's a lot of Mad Magazine in here, and there's a lot of kind of cartoonish stuff. I do think that that because of the cartoonishness, you can forgive when it gets a little corny. Because, I mean, or, let's face it. Or gruesome, so, I think, is yeah. one of the main reasons is, like, you know, if, if there are two dials, and you're, you know, constantly going between one and ten on comedy, and one on ten on horror, this movie never really gets above five on horror. But if you're feeding corpses or feeding recently killed people to a monster plant that's still pretty gruesome and so you put the comedy bits up to seven and a half eight right before you do your horror and i think it softens the blow right yeah absolutely my favorite part of this entire movie by the way is when jonathan hayes is pulling at his teeth and he falls backwards into all the dentist equipment and it starts to fall over and then the scene just cuts and that's just that's all we know about what happens until How we did see he, the... he's, he's dead and that's <laughs> it. <laughs> exactly Right. <laughs> My favorite shot in the movie, I'd lo- I want to actually get a screenshot of it. I love mm-hmm. it is when the robber, uh, the thief, is being eaten, and there's the his final shot is him uh, the the gun. He's holding the gun and it's pointing out of the Audrey's mouth. I love that shot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, there's still like you were saying before, Scott. If, if you're searching for artistry in a film, there's still plenty of it here. You just yep. need to to have your your <laughs> you got to you got to be on the lookout. Is all, Liam. Your thoughts on Jack Nicholson's performance in this movie? I think it's great. It's so weird. Uh, I I think I agree. Like the, it's not the wittiest part of the movie. Obviously, it's it's sort of like a you know a, a silly joke, but it's just not. 
It's just not what I was expecting. Again, this is my first time actually sitting uh, sure. and watching this movie, mm-hmm. and I I knew he did something unique, and I should have had some idea going in, but I was just sitting there going, "What the fuck?" Like it I really. Have a question. What What do you guys think the purpose of Nicholson's like that? His presence. I have one theory, but what do you think that scene even is in the movie? Hmm. It's 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 funny because there's a part in the movie where it kind of stops, right? And it's Seymour has to go get his his tooth taken care of, and the purpose of that sequence is solely so he can kill somebody else by sort of accident, and right. and but then it then the that that continues on into the Jack Nicholson appearance outside of it just being a funny gag and a way to maybe get this thing up to 70 minutes. I don't know. I want to hear your theory on this, Scott. I think that you need to make the dentist, instead of just being Skid Row and and sleazy, you need to make him nefarious. And if he's (laughs) willing to hurt somebody just to get, you know, a couple bucks and pull out their teeth, then he's now a villain worthy of being killed. Hey, but if anything, it's actually undercut by that scene, though, right? Because we see him earlier in the movie pulling out teeth uh, against someone's will. In this case, the guy actually wants the pain. Fair enough. <laughs> but I know there is something to that, that he gets his kicks from it, and he's got, like, one... And, of course, we, we find out that the Jack Nicholson character has never met this dentist before, so it's not like they have a, a relationship between <laughs> of pain. It would have been his, I guess, ideal customer. Um I want to talk a little bit about the ending of the film. Uh, Scott, you said that that's the part that probably doesn't work for you the most. Would that be fair to say? No, I, I think the ending works. Uh, it's darker than you might expect from a comedy. It's a little jarring, that's all. Sure, absolutely. How about the the section with the prostitute where Seymour gets yeah. hypnotized by uh, Audrey, too, and goes yeah. out and... What did you think of that scene? I think it touches on what you said, is that, that the screenwriter is trying really hard to pull the strings on Seymour with, and still make him sympathetic. Yeah. So in, instead of, I mean, you could have Audrey t- Jr. say, go out and get me this final. Oh, and you know what they also drop? They also drop this thread of Seymour seems to know how many times Audrey Jr. needs to be fed in order to yeah. be sated. And he he eats three, and the, 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 the thread seems to be going, much Nick thinks they're at two, and, and um, Seymour knows they're at one. That seems to be that where they're going, but they drop that thread entirely. Mm-hmm. And so at the end, he Audrey Jr. now has hypnosis skills. <laughs> That's just weird. That's like Jaws of the Revenge. That is like one one step too far. Um, and I didn't I didn't love that. I did love the shot where she accidentally knocks herself out. That's a weird, funny gag. <laughs> it's very, very strange. Again, there's lots of really bizarre stuff in this, but that kind of just adds to the fun. Liam, how about the ending? Does it work for you? The So for those who haven't seen the film, and I can't imagine that would be many people listening right now, uh, basically the cops find out that Seymour has been responsible for some of these murders. They're on the lookout for him. There's a chase scene. He hides in the toilet to get away from the cops. And then he goes back to the shop where he's going to kill Audrey two, the, the now giant plant. And then the film ends with, uh, uh Audrey two blooming in front of his mother and, uh, and, and the other characters in the film showing that he has been kind of implanted, uh, in just like all the it other was, victims. That is one thing that they didn't really touch on in the remake that I think is cool in a horror angle is that, the, the, the big reveal at the end is that the, the creature that you've been feeding people to and you think they're gone and you got away with it. No, the creature shows your crime. You are. Yeah, you've, you know, the victims are right there and you, now you didn't get away with it. So I think that's an interesting hook. Yeah, it's Sorry. an interesting hook. Absolutely. And one thing we'll talk about in just a moment is if either of you have seen the that alternate ending to the <laughs> to the musical uh, remake of, of, of Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, yeah. Liam, your thoughts on the ending of the film? 
Oh, um, I, you know, I knew it. You I, didn't watch it, Liam. You could admit it to us now. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm no. watching. I, I'm only watching forty minutes. Damn it! No matter yeah, what. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I guess my initial response was not positive. It was just kind of like, okay, whatever. It just felt kind of corny uh, to me in the moment. But honestly, what Scott just said about like uh, it's it sort of becoming like you know, the, here's a secret and then it's kind of revealed in the blooms that that having something of like a, it kind of highlights the morality tale aspect of the film, which is maybe not as important as the humor per se, but it's still a, 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 a theme of the film. Um, I just ha- wasn't thinking of it that way. I was just thinking of the effect, which is for me in the moment I was thinking, I can't tell what those blooms look like. Like, right. they, do they look like the people? I guess they look like the people. Like, <laughs> it wasn't that effective for me in the moment. But watching it, uh, but but thinking about it now, I'm like, well, but I, I like it on a thematic level. You know, I think it's kind of cool. Um, honestly, I, I, there was a part of me in the moment too, and this is unfair because, uh, you know, something's going to happen to Seymour. He's killed too many people and put them in the plant for him to, but him climbing in there with a gun, there's a part of me that wants the, the plant to be dead. There's a small part of me that's like, come on, give him something here, you know, but no, no, no. I think it, that, pl- it, that plant wants to survive. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised there hasn't yeah. been a series of sequels of this hypnotizing plant uh, uh, causing people to kill. Oh for my it. god, the hypnotizing thing is so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact that for some reason Seymour feels the need to cover the fact that Audrey Two can talk, so he will not reveal to Audrey One, who hears it talking in one of the funniest scenes in the movie, where he's pretending that it's him talking instead. That that he won't he won't let anyone know that. I'm not sure what it is that that. If anything, you think that would make it more impressive? He has a oh, talking she, fucking plan. She she gets inordinately angry. Uh, yes, at, at that that little misunderstanding scene. <laughs> Feed me. You're hungry. Come on, Seymour. Yeah, it's a it's a, you know it's a plot convention. Um, this movie has had a long lasting legacy. I think I mean, we've referred to it many times. Liam has already referred to the cartoon show from 1991, just called Little Shop. Uh, there's been several attempts at remaking this film, including by the uh, director of several of the Wrong Turn sequels, Declan O'Brien, who had been trying to make a, 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 a remake of the original version, not another adaptation of the musical for a number of years, but it has. Oh, that'll happen. Oh, I would love to see, not maybe not that particular filmmaker, who I've seen the Wrong Turn sequels. Um, I would love to see an interesting director try and do this the non-musical version. That would be inter- that would be really cool. I'm really surprised that it didn't happen in the mid 90s if only because there was that period of time where uh there were there were adaptations uh and remakes of old Roger Corman movies including A Bucket of Blood and Oh, I bet Earth. you it's a rights issue. I think it yeah, had think, to have been and probably tied think, up what is it, with the music. Warner, I think Warner probably once they made the remake owned the rights because it, like you mentioned way back it is a public domain title. So they probably own the rights to this movie by now. Um, yeah. Yeah. At, it's yeah. strange though, right? Because it's still in the mid '90s. There was the comic book adaptation, but again, it's probably a, a whole different thing. Um, and I would imagine if we are going to get a new version of Little Shop of Horrors, it's likely to be another adaptation of the musical, which has really retained its popularity. Greg Berlanti, the uh, the producer and creator of a lot of those uh, television DC adaptations, like Green Arrow and The Flash, he's been trying to get another adaptation of the musical um, off Eesh. off the ground over the last couple of years. Not him. <laughs> why so skeptical scott i don't know man like we need you need somebody who is a vibrant 
fresh, exciting, somebody who's really into musicals, you know, like not just somebody who saw this when they were a kid and loved it. You know what? The three of us saw this when we were a kid when they were loved it. Should we direct an, a musical? No. So I will say that that uh, that the the proposed cast, and I don't know how much uh, we should take this with a grain of salt for this uh, remake, includes Taron Egerton as uh, as Seymour what? and uh, Scarlett Johansson as Audrey. Any thoughts about what? that, Scott? Well, that's fine. They're good actors. I got this. That's just that's like asking me, like, what will Transformers Part 12 be about? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Right. It, it, it's such a pipe dream that that particular version will never happen. I would love to see either the original version or the or the musical be done in a slightly maybe not R rated, but maybe slightly darker version. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that could be fun. Get somebody, you know, like an Ari Aster or uh, the the woman, Jennifer Kent, who directed the Baba Duke. I'd like to see sure. her version, her version of this movie. That would be fun. Little shop. Um, I could also see somebody turning it into an HBO series and expanding it to eight hours. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the sky's the limit in the odd times in which we live. Hey, I just expect that we're going to get more Little Shop of Horrors content probably before too long. I mentioned just a little bit ago that uh, in terms of the 1986 musical uh, film directed by Frank Oz, that there's a kind of notorious alternate ending that was, I think it was uh, it was lost for a while, but now seems to be very commonly available, even included, I think, on the, some of the recent releases of it that include, do you know about this, Scott? Have you seen this alternate ending? Yes, I have, but it's been quite a while. So since you did the research, I'll let you describe it. I will oh, say boy. it is much darker than what we got in the original version of Little Shop of Horrors. I know there's a gigantic Audrey 2 that, that yeah. rampages like Godzilla. Uh, and there's, uh, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of kind of very bizarre material at the end of it. Very, very far removed from what we have in the film. Liam, yeah, any, uh, it, any, sorry. I saw, yes, so boot, I saw it just on a, a bootleg on YouTube a while back. And that, that, that's definitely where I first saw it. Liam, do you yeah. have any familiarity with this? I had no idea this existed. <laughs> then I will not belabor the point. Liam, uh, Billy Porter is supposed to be the voice of Audrey, too, in this new version. Any thoughts on that? That's fitting, actually. I like that. I'm, I'm a fan of that. <laughs> Liam, I just, I, I just like when somebody is surprised by their own positive reaction. <laughs> Well, because I just like you know when when didn't earlier Doug you just said uh, what's Edgerton what's that dude's name Taron Egerton from uh, from Rocket Man yeah no fuck that uh, you know what Boy. I mean like that's that's generally when I hear the names for these sorts of things I'm always like <laughs> eh, whatever like it's just not exciting for me but man I do love me some Billy Porter you know since Scott uh, volunteered some suggestions for potential directors for a remake. I'm going to ask you that uh, that uh, about that same topic, Liam. If David you could have Fincher, an... David Fincher's Little <laughs> Shop of Horrors. Are you kidding me? Sorry, Who would sorry. you want to remake? And I'm not talking about the musical. The musical, musical, fusical. That's what I say, Liam. If you could have any director do a remake of the original Roger Corman version of Little Shop of Horrors, which one would it be? I can't believe you said fusical. That's right. <laughs> Susical. <laughs> uh, can I? Can I? Oh man. Can you think about it? Absolutely not. Uh, oh boy, you forgot that you like directors. Oh no, Ryan Prowse. <laughs> <He's> wow, just... <laughs> you wow. just you're just blowing smoke now, Liam. O'Donnell. That's a deep cut. <laughs> I mean, he's you know friend of the show basically, and yeah, talented uh, guy. 
Yeah, yeah. I, met, I like I him. met Ryan in Chicago. Oh, but you guys were there. Duh. Yeah, we were there. Yeah. We hung out with Ryan. Ryan's a cool guy. We're glad to see oh, his. Yeah, I'm thinking like we were in the exact same bar <laughs> slash movie theater, dummy. Yep, yep. yep. <laughs> I mean, literally, it, here's the thing: is I I literally stopped and went. I don't know. Most people I know who could do horror and comedy, or who rather would be inclined to do horror and comedy, would want to like blow it out and wouldn't want to do it in a small way. And then he was just the first. Platinum that... Dunes presents <laughs> Marcus Nispel's <laughs> Littlest Shop, and it's just like people being fed into Audrey too, screaming like. Yeah! I just think he would be funny. I think he could figure out a way to make it funny still, but do it differently so it wasn't just like it's all the same beats and notes from the first one. Yeah, because that's what I don't want. It's like I've I've never been a fan of the idea of a remake being like let's just do what we did before. It'll be cool. I've never understood that. So I want someone who I think could do something that was their own. Yeah, like like you said, Platinum Dooms, right? If, 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 do do a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Remake. No, I, 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 no, no, no. Liam's right. That would be, I mean, like, you could use Little Shop of Horrors, the original 1960 film, as your first act for a new film. And then yeah. the second hand, and then, you know, acts two and three are now it's the little cuttings of it are being sold all over Chicago. And, you know, uh, somebody's interested in maybe doing it internationally. And now a guy like, like the stuff or Invasion of the Body Snatchers is trying to convince people that this plan is dangerous. You know, yeah, like, it's, it's, it's the ruins. Uh, that would be with... my way to expand Little Shop of Horrors into a a, 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 t- a new two hour movie, not a TV show, nothing, nothing exact, nothing elaborate. But there are there'd be a lot of I love love bio horror. I love plants, Day of the Triffids and the ruins. I love all that stuff. Uh, so there's definite ways that you could do a remake of Little Shop and not have it be this three act structure. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're getting away from the Little Shop of the Little Shop of Horrors. We're here. Scott Weinberg and that, no, that would be great. It would, it would, if our story would be, it's now expanding out. It would be little shops of horror. Yeah. Oh, hey, I'll, you know what? <laughs> now I'm on board. Liam yeah. O'Donnell and Scott Weinberg. We are here to talk about Dick Miller, the great character actor who is in Little Shop of Horrors as Burson Fouch. Uh, I mean, a lot of people already know this, but Dick Miller was supposed to play the lead role of Seymour in this film, but he turned it down because I believe the reason is that uh, he thought it was too close to his character in A Bucket of Blood. He didn't want to be cast or typecast, I should say, as that sort of put upon uh, uh, kind of whiny uh, and 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 uh, stammerish character. And instead, he plays a very different role. If anything, the Dick Miller role in this film is a lot more, uh, uh, a lot more similar to the kind of roles that we would see later in his career. Where he'd come in and he'd be this very unique, uh, maybe not quite as grizzled as we'd later see, but certainly someone who you never forget after watching the film. Uh, Scott, tell me your thoughts on Burson Fouch. I I like you know like you said these actors owed Roger Corman some time. Like that's mm-hmm. how the that's how the contract used to work. Is that you know, you're going to help me finish this film. And so he took the easier of the, of the two roles, frankly, <laughs> because he has a bit of rigmarole early in the film about, I want this play. I want these flowers. He starts eating them. Nobody thinks it's all, they think it's weird, I guess, but not all that weird. So, uh, and then he, he seems to know he, he gets to deliver some exposition about botany. And then, like you said, for the rest of the movie, he's like a background player. Uh, and that's fun. You know, I mean, I do wish he had had more to do. I wish what maybe if he had been maybe one of the dentist's uh, patients or uh, I wish it, maybe it would be more fun if he had been more of a character later in the film. But, you know, uh, any Dick Miller is good, Dick. 
I like that he is so cool in the movie. And that is that maybe that's not a word that I use a lot, even though I think of him as a very cool person and as a cool actor. His performances don't tend to be of cool characters. They tend to be really put upon. But this guy's cool and he knows what's going on. He even if every character in the little shop thought he was the biggest weirdo in the world for eating those flowers, he would not give a shit. He would just continue to munch on those flowers in the background, and that is what I like. Out is of, out of, what, is, what do you think is the main joke there? I think the joke is they never ask him about it. <laughs> I, think it I think it's exactly what you were saying, which is that yeah. they're, they're a little confused at first, but hey, you know what? This is Skid Row. We see weird shit every day. This doesn't even register for these people. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, in, in a world of, of torturous dentists and, uh, you know, the, a woman coming in talking about dead relatives every day, she, he's just another character. And, hey, he's actually a useful character because, as we already said, he kind of gives the idea uh, for Seymour to use the plant as a way of promotion. Liam, what do you think of Dick Miller as a person, Fouch? I mean, it's one of my favorite running jokes of the movie that he keeps showing up to eat the flowers. He he he's there for the flowers. The spicing of the flower, you know, that he has the salt or the pepper or whatever it is. I like to think it's not one of those things that it's like Cuban or something, but he has the spice in his pocket. He's brought paprika. it for the flower. Yeah, 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 paprika. Um, and that because he's a man who eat fl eats flowers, when he tells you something about flowers, even though our man is a florist. So in theory, he should fucking know more than any guy. But when flower eater guy tells you this seems like a big deal, my man's just like, yeah, okay, yeah. I don't know. This guy yeah, eats flowers. Much Nick doesn't seem to know a whole lot about flowers. No, he a good literally point. knows nothing. It's so good. He says he doesn't even like flowers. No. Isn't it? Isn't it ridiculous that you introduce this character who eats flowers, and he actually does, I think, show some brief interest in eating Audrey too, but that is never like part of the plot. The movie doesn't end with him eating Audrey too, or you don't even have Audrey too eating him, which you think would be the turnaround. You know, this guy eats flowers. Well, what if a flower ate him? Nope. Mm -hmm. He's just he he makes it all the way through because you're not going to kill off Dick Miller in this movie. Liam, have you ever eaten a flower before? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can see the appeal? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't think I've ever eaten carnations, but I think I've had food that incorporated edible flowers before. Sure. But if you ask me what they were, I don't, I don't fucking know. <laughs> uh, I think Dick Miller's performance in this movie is absolutely terrific. He really gets the spirit of what's going on, and I think that's that's consistent with a lot of the performers in this. But really, he comes in, he steals an entire scene, and then he's just there drawing your attention in the background. Like I said, like almost like a comic strip where you have these kind of like joke in the background. He's just always there eating his flowers has that amazing name by the way burson fouch that's not something we really talked about but every name in this movie is absolutely amazing it's one of the things i most love about it is ask that me it if, just... I, if i've ever eaten a flower scott i now i need to know have you ever eaten a flower no but i've smoked a few <laughs> lol <laughs> i was waiting when you because you asked him and i was like oh wait you gotta ask me i was i, was, I had that in the holster for you <laughs> well, with that said, I can't give a higher recommendation of Little Shop of Horrors, but one thing I want to say is, if you're going to see this film, maybe try to stay away from some of the public domain prints, which really do look crummy, but maybe that's an appealing thing too. I think a lot of people grew up on television screenings of this, or again, public domain showings, or VHS tapes, or now DVD versions, which are really rough looking. One of the things that I really liked though was visiting this on kind of the newer versions that are available on DVD and Blu-ray that are a little bit more cleaned up. 
it still looks rough. If anything, it, it shows the seams a little bit more, but it gives you kind of more of an appreciation for the fact that even though this was rushed out into the world, there's still a lot of craft on display. So I guess you can kind of have it both ways. You got your crummy looking versions, if that's what, the, what you go for. You got the cleaned up versions, just like something like A Bucket of Blood, which is available in those kind of versions as I watched well. But... It, I watched it on YouTube and it looked great. I, I yeah. honestly, I, did, I put it on my big, t- on my, when I don't have a huge TV, I have a pretty big TV. And I don't know which, if it was remastered or not, but it looked fine. Looked, Liam looked watched pretty. the colorized version. Yikes I almighty. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what was on Amazon. And uh, just for those of you wondering, like, should I watch this colorized version? It doesn't ruin the movie, but does it look good? Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. It looks <laughs> real bad, like distractingly bad. Oh, it's like I don't even know you anymore, dude. <laughs> hey, here's the deal. Doug hadn't sent me a copy. I don't own a copy, and there was only one but free you knew, copy. But you know it's public you kn- domain. You know, I, that's what I said, and, I, and then I gave you a copy of it, but any, but it's in the public domain. I had domain. already watched it. It was too late. It, the, the watching had occurred. Plus, <laughs> it's in the public domain, so what does that mean? That it's on YouTube? Yes. Yeah, it's on YouTube okay. and archive.org and Dailymotion and Vimeo and okay, Pornhub, you just wherever named, the fuck you, you want to watch You just named it. a bunch of fucking websites. Unlike you, Doug, I'm not a, a Neanderthal who watches things on a computer. I watch things on my TV, and this was the copy on my TV. Okay. Unlike you, Liam, you can watch anything from the internet on your TV. My, you just got to have a little know-how, Ro- sir. The, I don't have YouTube, that know-how because I'm also yeah, not Ro- a nerd. Roku is your friend, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, or Fire Stick, or Android TV, or your PlayStation, or whatever. Just watch it, sir. From 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 Daily Motion. Guys, Come on, you get guys out of fight my face. every episode. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, this when he pisses mild. me off, this this much, is my watch, watching a colorized version of the movie. Are you Bro, kidding? That's me? what was available. If you had sent me a copy at a reasonable time, but I got to work ahead here. Remember, I'm a parent. I have actual responsibilities. <laughs> no, no, I I don't know. For me, a color. When I hear colorized, it is it's like hearing um motion smoothing it just makes my skin it makes and and, it, and i don't i don't i don't like to i won't lecture people i won't wag my finger but for me personally oh it's like it's like or pan and scan i can't no get it away i'll watch it on my tv i'll watch it on my phone in widescreen you know that's fine if i have to but i won't watch anything in in pan and scan or colorized Ugh. yeah well i mean i guess I guess we're going to end on a sour note, Liam. Because... <laughs> oh, sorry. My bad. I feel so bad. I don't feel shit about that. I don't care. That's right. You're a parent, as you like to ram down our throats any chance you get. <laughs> if, well, you know what? If anything, for the sake of the show, it's good that he watched the colorized version because now we got both perspectives. Yeah, you got both perspectives. Your perspective, Liam, is it looks like shit. <laughs> yeah, it looks yep. really bad. <laughs> there we go. That's, that's val- it's still valid analysis. Uh, that w- that was our look at uh, the Little Shop of Horrors. Yes, it is very readily available. Uh, we'll actually put some links to uh, some uh, versions in our show notes today. Scott, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule. Uh, obviously, you're a very well-known figure as a critic, as a writer, as uh, someone on, on social media. You're obviously very well-liked. What are you up to? Where can people find you online? I am well-liked, aren't yeah. I? That, what a nice thing to hear. I did not know that. I am on Twitter, <laughs> Scott E. Movie Nerd. Uh, and yeah, if you want to check out Overhated, it's exclusively on my Patreon. Every third episode is free, so you can check it out and see if you like it. But, um, that is patreon.com slash Scott E. Weinberg. Uh, or again, you can just find me on Twitter and say, hey, Scott, how do I subscribe to your awesome Patreon thing? And I'll tell you. 
And if you want to find out the latest info, I believe that Scott's pinned tweet has all of the latest information as well. You can yeah, check that I hope out. to do it. I hope to do it for months and months. I really, I, I have so many, there are so many movies to choose from. Uh, I hope to do Rollerball 02 real soon. I want to get oh, to Mommy, Mommy Dearest and Xanadu. I want to dig back and do stuff like The Conqueror and Mommy Dearest. I mean, uh, and uh, uh, let's say Reefer Madness. Um, you know, uh, the the overhated movies of the 40s and 50s are kind of forgotten about. So sure. I want to kind of dig through some of those as well. Um, and of course, will, will you be watching the colorized version of Reefer Madness? No, I will be not. The colorized, no, nothing colorized. Of course not. Yeah, of um, course not. Uh, uh, yeah. So yeah, if you love bad movies and or bad movie podcasts, give it a listen. It is not as funny as the others, but we have a little bit more of a history lesson aspect. And Scott has revealed to us that there are some amazing guests coming up. We'll link that in the show notes as well. Please go over and support Scott and the podcast. Liam O'Donnell, what is going on over at Cinepunks? I've heard a lot of exciting things, some sort of uh, deal with a band or a, or a documentary. Tell me more. Oh, we got a number of things. Yeah, so first off, on September 24th, Friday, September 24th, uh, is that Friday? Yeah, I think it's Friday. Um, when it, as part of the pre-show for the Decibel Metal and Beer Fest, we're going to be hosting uh, Dead Guy Killing Music, a documentary about the 90s band Dead Guy, who, by the way, is pay- playing their first full reunion. Maybe not their first, but at least the first in a long time at Decibel Metal and Beer Fest. So if you are a Dead Guy fan who's got a ticket to see Dead Guy um, come on the 24th to see this documentary at Underground Arts in Philadelphia, uh, there's also apparently a brewery who's made a beer just for the event. So huh. that's cool. I don't Will know. Will you be partaking that. in that, Liam? Will you be I'm drinking, not even gonna be drinking some brews? Event. No? Uh, no, I won't even be there. I'll be in Chicago. But. Oh. Um, that seems cool. We also have a new podcast coming very soon called uh, Twitch of the Death Nerve uh, with a uh, friend of the show, Sam Deegan, uh, covering, you know, cult and horror films, uh, a lot of uh, personal history with, uh, you know, uh, gritty films is sort of the vibe. And uh, the, the there should be a trailer up within probably a week of this coming out uh, or maybe less uh, and then the first episode will drop shortly after that so i think it's going to be a lot of fun if you go if you search for twitch of the death nerve on instagram they actually have audio samples up on their instagram so you can get a vibe for uh what the show is going to be like uh and you know and of course all our usual stuff lots of great episodes of not only this show but horror business cinepunks uh tomb of ideas um uh evil eye lots of stuff over there at cinepunks c-i-n-e-p-u-n-x.com and you can find cinepunks on all social media uh pretty much under that name cinepunks including twitter and facebook you can find I Liam. remember on when you created that site i remember when you built that site like the day you published it i remember when cinepunks was an infant I and now it's that. a full-grown child liam just like that's your own true. full-grown child that's true now, now you've got all these different shows and shit it's awesome man you can find Liam on uh, on Twitter at Liam Rules. And you can find myself on Twitter as well at Doug underscore Tilly. If you want to find out more about Cinema Smorgasbord, you can do that over at cinemasmorgasbord.com where we have all of our other shows under the Cinema Smorgasbord name, including podcasts devoted to actors as diverse as Jackie Chan, as Steve Buscemi, as Carol Kane, and of course the continuing adventures of Eric Roberts is the fucking man Redux, all available nice. over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can find us on social media on Twitter, in particular at Cinema Smorg, that's S-M-O- RG. We're also on Facebook as well. Uh, if you can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, we'd appreciate it very much. But for now, 
we need to take a little break. We need to rest up, and we're going to be back very soon with another guest and another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everybody. Thank you.